Hello everyone, welcome to another edition of True Conversations where we explore the truth with the most brilliant minds. I am here joined by Kieran Sitia, who teaches philosophy at MIT, working mainly in ethics, epistemology, and the philosophy of mind. He is the author of Practical Knowledge, Reasons Without Rationalism, and Knowing Right from Wrong. He also wrote a new book, Life is Hard, that combines philosophy with personal essay, exploring deeply several timeless themes in our life, including loneliness, grief, failure, injustice, absurdity, and hope. And as I was saying to Kiran before recording, this book comes on a very timely moment in my life as I try to weigh in how to live a fulfilling life. So Kiran, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. I am very happy to have this conversation because your book is an honest look into how one could examine one's life and how to look at it through an honest lens and embrace a lot of ideas that really self-help books don't really try to touch you know everything is just signed into happiness and but I feel like your book really touches upon the whole spectrum of life what is a true meaningful life but before we jump into life is hard your book I wanted to ask you what sparked your passion to understand ourselves through philosophy that's a long story, I suppose. I got interested in philosophy when I was pretty young. I think I was asking philosophical questions when I was six or seven or eight, questions about why anything exists or uh, whether there's a God. And I really got interested in philosophy as a teenager by reading the American horror sci-fi author H.B. Lovecraft, whose story, who was himself influenced by philosophers and whose stories explore philosophical themes often about the nature of science or epistemology questions about our knowledge of reality so i started reading the philosophers lovecraft read and then at some point realized i was more interested in philosophy than i was in lovecraft and ended up studying philosophy in college and really never looked back from that point so i i mean i have a sense that on the way I think about philosophy, the kinds of questions philosophers ask about how to live and our place in the universe are ones that most people ask at some level. It's just that some of us have the fortune or temperament to spend more of their time grappling with them than than others. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. And also, there's certain degrees of, you know, of allowance for those questions to arise. And you've been able to share with us your thoughts on the deeper, timeless questions of life itself and how to live a fulfilling life. So, Kieran, what do you think society needs philosophy? What's the role of, you know, in modern society? How can philosophy help us, you know, answer these big questions? I think there are several sides to that. It One thing is that I, I think there are, aspects of philosophy in which philosophers deal with practical questions of, say, in the ethics of technology or in political philosophy, where it's not hard to see the connection between what philosophers are doing and practical political social problems. I would say that the two areas where 
there's more work to do in conveying the value of philosophy. One is the value of pure philosophical inquiry, kind of akin to pure science in which philosophers ask questions in metaphysics or epistemology or aesthetics that don't have any immediate practical application. And although that's not what my book is about, I do think that those aspects of philosophy have a, a value, even if they're not sort of practically useful. But the, the thing that I've been most interested in is the way in which philosophy, moral philosophy in particular, has come to be somewhat divorced from people's practical reflection on the problems they face in their own lives. I mean, this came out for me at a certain point in thinking about the contrast between the conversations I would have with friends about how to live their lives, which were usually about things like parenting or whether to have kids or whether they should quit their job or whether they should be devoting more time to helping other people than to their own career. Questions that philosophers ought to be able to address and ought to be addressing, but that it would take real work to connect what is going on in moral philosophy to those sorts of questions. And what I wanted to do was bridge that gap between the, the actual practical questions that many of us are asking about our lives and philosophy. And this also relates to my sense that the, the gap between philosophy and self-help is less distant and that relationship is is more complicated and richer than we might suppose. So one way to answer the your initial question in relation to my work is to say, I, I think philosophy can be of much more direct practical use to people grappling with the question of how to live their own lives than its academic forms often make it seem. And it's that kind of connection that I would like to rebuild in the work I've been doing for non-academic audiences, both in Life is Hard and in the, the previous book, Midlife, which was you know, aimed at people dealing with the, the challenges of being middle-aged. Yeah, I, I'll ask you a question on Midlife uh, more later on the conversation. Uh, but what you say here is brilliant because it seems, at least on my perspective, that philosophy has become has been perceived as something that can only you know thrive on the academic sphere that can only thrive in the aisles of a classroom you know with teachers and professors and students alike and you truly bridge that gap at least with me because you show how we can take an, a, a pragmatic approach towards philosophy and our practical life on our day by day life. Going into life is hard. You know, this is a book where we, where you tackle and you bring us with you along the journey. You tackle big themes in life, you know, loneliness, grief, absurdity, hope, and failure. And all of these themes are neglected or rather we want to turn a blind side on because they're really not um, self-help doesn't really try to tackle these issues because they're really they can make us uncomfortable you know facing these questions but ultimately my own outcome my own result from reading your book life is hard is that 
acknowledging these topics and talking about them can really help us thrive and have a fulfilling life, a good life, a true life. So going into your chapter on loneliness, it's very interesting to to read on how society has become a lonely place, a very atomic place. And you do this distinction between solitude and loneliness. So for our listeners who really are not familiar with this distinction, can you shed a light on it? Yeah, so the, there's a, a kind of descriptive condition of just being on your own, which might feel good or might feel bad. When people talk about loneliness, what they have in mind, I think, is the the kind of pain of the frustration of our social needs and our, our need for, broadly speaking, friendship, but it might also be family or other kinds of loving relationships. And once you make that distinction, it's clear that you could, even when there are lots of people around, feel the pain of social disconnection or loneliness. And you might be on your own and feel peacefully at ease with your own solitude. So I think the 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 topic that we the sort of topic that philosophers thinking about how to live well should uh, want to focus on is the question of what exactly is the nature and source of the suffering that we experience when we're socially disconnected what exactly is the social disconnection there and to the extent that we can try to illuminate how to address that kind of problem using the philosophical resources that illuminate it. So for me, you know, the philosophy of friendship, philosophical thinking about friendship is really the place to turn in trying to make sense of this, because broadly speaking, it's that the question of what is bad about loneliness is complementary to the question, why does it matter to have friends? What's good about friendship? And, uh, that framing of the topic, I think, is is sort of connects something negative with which philosophers discuss much less in its own terms with something that philosophers have had quite a lot to say about, which is is our social nature and the value of, of friendship and relationships. Yeah. And like you say, it's really interesting how, you know, friendships have a premium in our life. And of course, because we were social animals, like you argue. Uh, it's interesting to think when you write about the different I, versions of friendships in one's, you know, one's life, you know, there, we, we also, we tend to think we can only have true friends, only one type of friends, but are there distinctions in how we can nurture different types of levels in our society? And what are the benefits of this? I think there's sort of two layers to to that question. One is that something that I think Aristotle gets right, and then I think there's something Aristotle gets wrong. I think one thing that Aristotle, who sort of the key philosopher of friendship, really, and that his Nicomachean Ethics, his book about how to live, has two full chapters on friendship. It's complete. It's sort of central to his thinking about how to live well. One thing I think he gets right is that his notion of of friendship, the Greek word is philia, is very broad. So he includes family relationships, uh, romantic relationships, what, what we would ordinarily think of as friendships, and also more distant kind of commercial interactions and so on. Maybe it's a little too broad, but he he's interested in the kinds of connections that answer to our social needs. And I think 
recognizing that a very broad range of relationships can do that is an important starting point. The thing that I think Aristotle gets wrong is that his view is that the best kinds of friendship are friendships of virtue. So his fundamental model is in a way meritocratic. He thinks you ought to be friends with people who you think of as in some way good. And in the paradigmatic case, they're good because they, they are virtuous. And I, I think actually, when we think about the, the friendships we have in life, some of them are with people we think of as virtuous, others are not. And many of them, part of the value of the friendship is that it doesn't seem conditional in the way Arist Aristotle's meritocratic model makes it. So in, in fact, part of what's reassuring in a way about some friendships in our lives is that we are loved and cherished regardless of any merits. We don't have to earn that kind of appreciation by have by being virtuous. People love us anyway, just for existing as who we are. And I think once you recognize that, you have a, a kind of vision of what the value of human life is, uh, on which love is a kind of appreciation of the worth or dignity of human existence that is available for anyone. Everyone is in that sense worthy of love. And in, in fact, it's the value that is recognized and appreciated in love is the same kind of value that we respond to in compassion and in moral respect. And this is, I, I think, is something that Aristotle sort of misses, is the continuity between respect and compassion and love. And so I think that further broadens and extends our picture of what kinds of relationships can answer to our social needs and fight the harm of loneliness. And it turns out that this sort of philosophical vision on which what's really at issue in love and friendship, as in compassion and respect, is a kind of mutual recognition of the our value as human beings, that we, we recognize that value in others, and it, and it matters to us to have our value as human beings recognized by others. That kind of picture that comes from the kind of philosophical reflection on friendship I just gave you a kind of very quick sketch of, actually is confirmed by what social scientists say when they look at the causes of and strategies for addressing loneliness. So one of the things that social scientists who work on this, like John Cacioppo, wrote a very influential and very helpful kind of popular book about this. He's a psychologist who worked on loneliness. One of the things he points out is that it, one of the most effective ways to try and overcome loneliness is just to forge connections with others in which you're just recognizing them and acknowledging them in small ways, and they're acknowledging you in small ways without making that contingent on or aspiring to any kind of further close relationship, as it were, worrying just about someone else and the fact that they matter, not about the relationship you might get out of this. And it turns out that even small moments of connection like that, small moments of mutual acknowledgement that are not really close friendships or not really friendships at all, do already start to diminish people's sense of loneliness. They do sort of scratch the same itch as friendship uh, scratches. So I think that way of thinking about the breadth of relationships that can meet our, our the, the kind of pain of loneliness, that includes moral relationships and compassionate relationships too, I think is something 
both philosophically important and practically important as we try to grapple with loneliness in our own lives. Yeah, wow, that's that's brilliant. And it's you touch on many themes, for example, how friendships in and of themselves, relationships can become like you argue in life is hard, like telic versus atelic endeavors, yeah. you know, for the sake of friendship itself or for trying to create a project, which I also want to cover later on. Sure. There's so many things that you touch on right now that really, I believe, can be the the foundations of the next Nobel Prize for Peace. Because uh -huh. like you say, when we acknowledge each other's place on Earth, our value just because of the sake that we're here together, you know, you and me are here for a good, hopefully 120 years, you know, on this broad spectrum of life of existence which is just a blink of an eye and to put it more practically i believe that if we all together take a step backwards and acknowledge like you say we're here that the value is in the in the reality that we're here together this maybe sound to kumbaya but it's i think it's spot on to i i wouldn't believe that if anyone really comes to the conclusion that we're here just for a very brief period of time in terms of galaxies, <laughs> time and space, and the universe, we wouldn't take this as an excuse to fight another one another or to not see the, the truth or the value in and of the, itself of being here and, and experiencing life. Yeah, no, I, I, I don't think that's too come by all. I mean, I think I, I think it may be that the actual ideal of human beings recognizing one another's dignity, one another's value is incredibly hard to achieve. But I think that that ideal is a kind of enlightenment ideal. It's It comes out of moral philosophical thinking over the last 250 years and i do think it's a profound and valuable ideal and i think connecting it with love and friendship is helpful because it, it one thing that that connection brings out is that something that we all tend to crave on our own behalf namely loving recognition we want to be loved and appreciated and we want and, and we love and appreciate other people i think there is a path from recognizing our own need for love and our capacity to love others to realize that realizing that that if i think of myself as worthy of love in a way that doesn't have to be earned if i can come to see myself in that way mm -hmm. that's of a piece even though that's quite a self-centered starting point it's of a piece with recognizing that as a fact about human beings in general and it, it is the Again, the, the, it's a, the saccharine but true thought that everyone is worthy of love and that that, it, that fact is connected with, with the way in which every human being's existence demands and calls for respect is a kind of foundational moral idea. And I think it's an important fact about us that one way into this foundational moral idea is just through reflection on our own loneliness, on our own social needs. Yeah, and like you, you say, the we don't really we, we've became we, we have become a, a society where we put a premium on friendships in terms of what we've earned 
or the meritocracy side of it, like you touched earlier. And touching into telic versus atelic uh, endeavors in life, you know, I feel like at least Western society has put, like I said earlier, has put a premium in having friendships in terms of, or having one's own value also priced in in metrics in how much we earn or wealth or you know our title what we've achieved and so i feel that your ideas make us make me reflect on how am i approaching life itself in terms of you know this journey or like you you touch on life is hard this project that needs to be fulfilled you know this project where I need to achieve more and more and more and more and the result of that is gonna be society is gonna have a premium in me I'm gonna be a valuable asset I'm gonna be a productive asset so what are I would I want to butcher your ideas what are what's your take on this here and like the, this dissonance between telic versus atelic meritocracy all of that I all of that I just blew. yeah well so so maybe yeah maybe I should say something about this distinction that see that that I think has many applications and I think it's very important between telic and atelic activities and that you're connecting with friendship, which I think is, is, uh, it can be very illuminating there. It also connects with ideas about, uh, meritocracy, about success and failure in life. The key idea is this, that many of the activities we engage in and value have a kind of endpoint that they aim at They're projects of trying to achieve something and those are the ones I call telic. They they have a kind of telos that is the final point at which they're completed. And many projects matter. And it's not that I, I'm sort of opposed to projects straightforwardly, but they do have complicating and self-undermining features. So one aspect of aiming to complete a project, like get a promotion at work or get a new job or get married or have a kid or publish a book is you're aiming at something in the future and it, while you don't have it, there's a kind of frustration. You're not there yet. Mm -hmm. But the moment you achieve it, you're done. So it's now in the past. So there's a way in which satisfaction is always in the future or in the past. The present is a moment of frustration, of, of frustrated striving. And in fact, it's even worse than that. Because if what you care about is completing a project, and that's giving meaning to your life, then by trying to complete the project to... Uh, get to the end of an AT, of a telic activity, what you're doing is taking a source of meaning in your life and trying to just extinguish it, trying to kick it out of your life. And there's something self-defeating or self-undermining about that. So I, for me, I think this sense that I was very project-driven, very excessively focused on these telic activities was part of the source of my midlife crisis. But I think it's also a way in which you can relate to relationships or friendships, as you suggested. And importantly, it's not the only way to relate to the activities in our lives. So as well as telic activities, there are atelic activities that don't have a terminal point. So it might be that as well as you know, writing a philosophy book, there's thinking about philosophical questions where there's no particular endpoint at which you're done with that and it's all over. It, it, it's an ongoing activity that insofar as that's what you value, mm -hmm. If you're thinking about philosophy or talking about philosophy as we are now, you have what you want right now. The value is realized in the present. It doesn't have this problem of being deferred to the future or the past. 
And it doesn't have the problem that with your, that your engagement with these kinds of activities exhausts them. So you could apply this to relationships too. There's things like having a kid or getting married, the kind of milestones of relationships that you aim at in telic activities. But there's also just having an ongoing friendship with someone or parenting, which are atelic activities that don't aim at a particular endpoint. And I think a kind of distortion to which we're pervasively subject is to invest too much in projects, to get too focused on the the kinds of activities that are that feel hollow and empty at the time and aim at the future and then are archived in the past. And an important shift for us to make in a, achieving a, a, a kind of a better balanced relationship towards what matters in our lives is to properly focus on the value of atelic activities and recognize the value of you know, engagement independent of what it produces. And I do think that connects in ways that are that you were pointing to with kind of ways of valuing human life yeah. on which what exactly gets produced is the metric by which we evaluate how well a life is going. Yeah. And like you say, it's the, the way that I that I frame your ideas has been trying to do activities for the sake of doing them, just for the sake of doing the activities. And then, you know, I can relate with you, Kieran, that I'm also very project driven. And I've realized that there is this sacrifice, like you say, there is this sacrifice between the present and the future, where I'm always trying to, you know, always trying to strive to build something. And then the moment when it arrives or it doesn't arrive, I want to touch on failure too. Yeah. It just, everything just realizes to, to cease to exist. And then this story, this narrative that we tell ourselves, like you argue life is hard, that we have, we have to create this narrative. We have to create this, this story about who we are rather than just being who we are can be really dangerous because life keeps going, time keeps passing. And like going back to my Kumbaya moment, you know, we're here for a blip of a moment The the project in and of itself really won't matter. What will matter is how we unfold through the project, if I'm making sense. And failure is part of this, this, I want to say challenge that we have as society or as individuals in, at least in the United States, I don't want to say everyone, that failure is seen as, 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 you know, as a problem, as a, as our story not really unfolding as becoming heroes. And I noticed you have in the background baseball, which I'm also a very a fan of baseball I play. <laughs> and you touch in life is hard, the stories of baseball and, and some really enlightening ways of, of approaching failure. So how is this, you know, thinking about life as a linear path, dangerous and can have its shortcomings and what is the enlightening way of approaching failure in life? So I, I think one part of this is is just the shift from focusing on telic activities to atelic activities is already changes one's relationship to failure because with telic activities, you, you either succeed or fail. There's this end goal and either you achieve it or you don't. Yeah. 
Yeah. Whereas with atelic activities, they can go better or worse, but they don't have quite the same final all or nothing relationship to failure and success as telic activities. I think there's a particular kind of obsession with telic structuring that we're often prone to, and that a lot of philosophers suggest is in fact part of living well. And this is the idea that we should tell our own stories. We should have a kind of life narrative in which we make sense of ourselves, which I that seems good to me. It's when it takes the form of saying the life narrative should be a kind of linear structure in which you're the hero who has a kind of defining quest. And as soon as you start framing your life in those terms, you're allowing one kind of telic activity, one kind of project to play a life-defining role. And I think there's lots of ways in which that's problematic. One way in which it's problematic is it sets you up for the risk of failure. If you fail, it won't just be one thing that you failed in. It will be the life-defining activity, and you'll tend to think of yourself as a failure. Yeah. It's also problematic because it's just distorting of the value of life. I think it, focusing on your life as defined by a single project is a, a way of risking ignoring the value of the the diversity and plurality of smaller projects, atelic activities, connections, attachments to others that actually make up the value of a life. I think most people's lives, insofar as they're good, are good in miscellaneous ways. It's not because there's some grand narrative that makes them good. And finally, I think there's a, a risk in defining your life by grand narratives. This isn't essential, but as a matter of fact, what often happens is that the grand narratives by which people define their lives are ones that are socially uh, embedded, socially sanctioned in ways that are not really autonomous for us. So we, we find ourselves thinking that the grand narrative has to be one of success mm -hmm by the standards of society, and that's often a certain kind of career success or financial success that it embeds us in social structures that are themselves problematic. And to some extent, we can fight against this as individuals by refusing to let single narratives define our lives. Insofar as we tell stories to make sense of ourselves, let's not tell stories on which there's one grand linear narrative Let's tell stories on which our lives are as complicated and messy mm -hmm. as they really are. But there's also a social dimension, which is that insofar as there are social pressures to let yourself be defined by narratives of uh, economic or social success, that's something that the fight against that is not something that we as individuals can simply achieve. That's The fight against that is in part a, a kind of social fight. It's a fight to transform the terms of society through which we understand one another and through which we structure our lives in relation to one another. So I think there's a political dimension to this, th this sense that many of us have of being threatened with failure or mm. being concerned to assess ourselves as successes or failures. And that political dimension demands a political re response. It's very interesting because a lot of us are pushed into this idea that, like we touched before, we are a project and there is this leaderboard in society where we need to climb this ladder and the ladder be 
becomes a corporate ladder, the ladder becomes a wealth ladder, the ladder becomes, you know, status ladder. It's interesting to, to see how we are willing to invest like 40 to 50 years of, of one's life into achieving retirement, so to say, and just go back and, and think about all of the things we could have done, you know, but instead we were so invested in this societal idea of trying to accomplish until I have the opportunity not to accomplish anymore and enjoy freedom, which is, it, it's, it's interesting, no? That, that we do this, at, you know, mid-20s, we do this jump of 40 years of, a, you know, like the, the movie Click, where it's a, complete, <laughs> it's a complete blur until we get to, to the point of the 60s, 65, and we can enjoy again. We can enjoy our freedom. And the value, why am I saying this? Because the value of what you say is very insightful for, for me and hopefully for people my age and all different ages as, as well, is that the project in and of itself doesn't have to be 40 years from now. It has to be now with the skills that one has, the, the values that one has, you, the, the person we're trying to, to be and who we are really is going to unfold the project as it will. You know, there is no, there is no written script. And I think in our age, in my age, we try to, we buy it. So that's, there's so many interesting things to pick up on that. I thought it's a, one is I think you're, you're drawing a connection between the, idea of valuing oneself in terms of the completion of certain socially sanctioned projects and the kind of meritocratic vision of what makes you worthwhile as a human being and that that, that that's a particular form of meritocracy different from Aristotle's virtue-based meritocracy but having in common with it the idea that you have to sort of earn by some kind of accomplishment or some kind of excellence mm. your you have to earn people's recognition Whereas there's a basic moral recognition and even a loving recognition to which we're all entitled without having to earn it in any way. I think that's a very important connection to draw. I think the other thing that comes to mind when you talk about this is I think one thing that happened during the pandemic in the, the great resignation was a kind of reflection in which people stepped back from their, the, the projects, the career projects that were defining their lives and thought, hold on, th could this be different? Should this be different? In a way that often we don't do because we've got our heads down just trying to survive, make ends meet, deal with the the, the kind of the needs of life. Yeah. And, and I think it also connects with relationships because I take it, again, this is speculative, but based on, on, on sort of reading what um, people have written about this phenomenon of the great resignation is a lot of people realize that what was sustaining their willingness to carry on at work was social. It was that there were social connections with people. Hmm. But when you abstract from that by suddenly working from home all the time and just think, well, how about the project I'm engaged in? Is that something that I'm really devoted to? Suddenly they think, no, actually, I'm not sure I want to be doing this job. What 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 made it 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 survivable for me or what made it seem fine was that it was just sort of incidentally in the course of pursuing this project, I had relationships with people that, that were meaningful. And I think what you're pointing to uh, at the end of what you said is a kind of reversal of that that I really welcome. But the reversal is to say, 
It's not that we shouldn't try to achieve anything. Projects matter. But to some extent, they should be subordinate to the atelic activities of trying to live well. So living well is Aristotle's primary example of an atelic activity. There's no point at which you're like, great, I'm done with that. Now I've lived well, what will I do next? Mm -hmm. it's, it's the kind of defining ongoing activity that you cannot complete. And in the course of living well and trying to live a, a good life, live as a good person, you'll have to do all kinds of projects. You want the projects to be subordinate to that overarching atelic activity of trying to, to live a good life in whatever way you, with your particular temperament and tastes and talents and abilities, can live a good life. And that reorientation, sort of putting projects in their place, I think is a very helpful kind of reflective reorientation of how we approach our lives. Yeah. And to... to wrap up this segment this I, I've watched an interview I think it was with, from from Tom Bleu I don't know with who exactly remember with who but we tend to this is like another aha moment that I had that again to the retirement side of the of the equation I was putting a premium and a lot of people in the macro sense put a premium on you know the the looking back to life, you know, the those last moments in one's life where, oh, I accomplished so much, my project is done, or, you know, trying to prevent that feeling of saying, oh, I didn't finish my project. So imagine going, I'm not there yet, but a lot of people, when they're old and they're in their last quarter of their life, is they're asked, do you regret anything in life? And living trying to live as if we're trying to minimize that feeling mm. is I feel like it's paradoxical and it's also a self-fulfilling prophecy that we're ultimately going to have a, a feeling of regret because we're just trying to maximize until the, let's say if, if life was a 12 hour clock we're just trying to maximize the 1159 <laughs> you know <laughs> to say oh that was great but like you say this Atelic activities and just being in awe with with life in its whole spectrum, happiness, sadness, love, um, you know, courage, absurdity, failure, all of these ideas in and of themselves are priceless. That's the value that we, we can achieve in life. And to switch gears a bit more into what you mentioned on politics and it's a political endeavor of of us to try to switch things you in life is hard you touch also on injustice and how self-responsibility is really involved in this so i'm trying to make a connection between these two ideas on how we have a self-responsibility to fix injustice and how is, can this become like a bottom uh, upwards spiral of creating a societal change. Yeah, so I, I, I think there's a, a connection between this recognition that society is structured in ways that push us to devote, you know, to, to devote a part of our lives to projects that subordinate what really matters in the hope of reaching a point where we can then say, okay, I'm done with that. Now I can actually focus on what really matters. And that 
that does not seem like the ideal way for for our, our lives to be structured. So I think that structuring is not something that we can change as individuals just by without changing society. But I think there are also wider issues of of injustice. So you know, there are issues about climate justice. There are issues about the faltering of democracy. There are issues about racial and gender justice, and so on. So I. Part of what I'm, I confront in that chapter of the book is the sense that lots of us have that we read the news, the world seems that there seem to be so many forms of injustice yeah. to confront, and we feel powerless to do anything about it. And in a way that the point I, points I want to make are, are kind of reminders of things that we that we mostly at some level know but that we can clarify with the tools of philosophy. And one of those things is that we are caught up in patterns of injustice ourselves. So when we think about what we owe to others and trying to make the world a better place, there are kind of influential movements like effective altruism, which focus on the idea of altruistically helping those in need. And yeah. nothing wrong with that, but that many of the ways in which people are suffering and many of the forms of human uh, need that we confront are not just ones that are unrelated to human activity. They're the products of, say, the use of fossil fuels or the pro products of um, colonialism, or they, they have a human history that involves injustice in which we either ourselves involved as we are, you know, people in the West like me who have gigantic carbon footprints because we're part of a society that has a, a, has used fossil fuels to a huge degree, causing harms that will predominantly affect those who did least to cause them. Um, so we're caught up in, in those kinds of injustices or we're beneficiaries of them. So I think that does place us under a responsibility to address the social structures that cause those kinds of injustice. And I think it's very illuminating here to draw on ideas from the political theorist Iris Marion Young, who stresses that the kind of responsibility we're subject to here, we shouldn't think of it in terms of blame. It's sort of counterproductive and misleading to frame the special responsibility, those who are complicit with injustice in the way, say, I am, as blame for the history of injustice. The point is about the kind of forward-looking responsibility to... Uh, address the kinds of structures that are causing injustice in which you're entangled in a way that changes them. And those changes have to be collective. So I think the second thing to say about our responsibility is the way to act on our responsibility is going to be less about the individual action of, say, donating to a charity, although that might be valuable too, than thinking about the collective causes and asking, how can we be part of collectives that will change the structures that are actually responsible for this kind of injustice. And often those structures seem gigantic and hard to change. So political structures in which we can uh, we can participate by voting, but our influence is very minimal. I think it's very useful here to think about smaller scale structures. So it might be your school or your university, or it might be your town or your place of work, where there are larger structures in which you have a much more salient influence and you can start to act to fulfill the, the kind of responsibility we have to address injustice collectively, but in smaller collectives. And there's so much to say about, about why this is the right way to go. But part of it is that it's just emotionally 
much easier to sustain the commitment to do something if you're part of a collective in which there's camaraderie around that goal than if you think of yourself as an isolated individual. So I think both in terms of the, the actual structure of our responsibilities and in terms of what is likely to be a sustainable way of addressing them, thinking in terms of collective action at whatever kind of smaller scale of collectivity you are able to grapple with is the, the right way to discharge these responsibilities. And final point, which again, I think is, is something that most of us are aware of, but it's we need to remind ourselves of, is that our difference, the difference we make may be small or incremental, but the difference between nothing and something remains a profound difference. Like the, the fact that we can't individually transform the world isn't something we mustn't take that as a reason for passivity or inaction. It, it remains true that every small step towards uh, increasing the chances of cha change at any scale is meaningful, even if, you know, we can't overnight make the dramatic changes we wish we could see in the world. Wow. Yeah, it's, I, I never thought about it that way that, you know, starting from our from our sense, our big institutions, where in the macro sense are very, very small institutions, for example, our school, you know, our community, those those ways to enact change or rather have an actionable plan to create change stop us from paralyzing because like you point out the idea that this is so overwhelming there's so many thousands of years of history behind me of human endeavors like fossil fuels or injustice or colonialism that are behind just personally speaking they do paralyze me like they were like okay so what am I supposed to do? I can't stop climate change with my, you know, I don't have a magic wand. <laughs> I can't do it. So this brings me to, you know, your chapter on absurdity to that. You touch on nihilism and this idea that, you know, I really can't do anything. So might as well don't do nothing, you know, just, just, just and passively live life. But you argue in a very, big scale that we're agents of action we're agents of of we have agency in life we do have agency in life even though there's external shocks that you argue in life is hard and you've argued now there's external shocks that do influence our path on earth but that shouldn't stop us for from creating action in life and shaping our path so this part of absurdity in life here you, you, you write that it's w when we think about it, life is really <laughs> it's a it's a almost like a comedy. You know why we're here, this small marble in the universe trying to solve the problem of should I get groceries now or later or <laughs> should I run? Should I do exercise? What does it really matter? And I want to ask you, putting you in the spot, like how can we actually reverse engineer that idea that actually these things matter and how can absurdity really ignite our life? I mean, I think one thing is to just begin by distinguishing the question of whether I as an individual or you or anyone as an individual has a meaningful life from these big questions about the meaning of life, like what does it all mean? 
and to recognize that those are distinct questions. So I think we don't need life to have some kind of cosmic meaning in order for the little things we do to help those around us or to enjoy our own lives to be worth doing. So that's one kind of sort of small point. But I think a thing that philosophers will often do, having drawn that distinction, is to say, let's just focus on individual meaningful lives and forget about these big picture questions about whether life as a whole has meaning. In fact, you know, what even is the meaning of life? Does that even make sense? And one thing I argue in the book is that we really can make sense of that idea. And in a nutshell, here's, here's how I think we can make sense of it. When we're not asking about individual meaningful lives, like whether you or I or some particular person has a meaningful life, but whether life as a whole has meaning. In a way, what we're doing is looking at the whole of human history in the past and as we project it into the future and the place it has in the cosmos and asking, what does it all mean? And that question, what does it all mean? We can think of that as kind of like the question you ask about a work of art like a, an opera or uh, a novel or a painting or a sculpture where you say, what is this all about? Trying to come up with an interpretation that makes sense of it as a whole, a kind of way of describing and explaining it that tells us how to make sense of it and ultimately how to feel about it, how to orient ourselves towards this work of art. But we can ask those questions about things that aren't works of art. We can ask them about human history, about human history and its place on earth and in the cosmos. And so I think that's a perfectly good question. The question, how should I feel about human history makes sense. And I think you can see how religions might answer that question because they give us a story about either human history's relation to God, or if they're not theistic religions, something about the kind of nature of human life and the nature of the cosmos that is a, a kind of metaphysical insight that tells us how to feel about it. But if you set aside those religious vis visions, it's not that the question goes away or doesn't make sense. It's just that the the answer to it, the answer to the question, how to feel about human history is, well, it depends. The answer is going to be, it depends on what shape human history takes. So I, I connect this with in the book with climate change, which I think of as not just a problem of imminent climate justice and injustice that we have to address, but also as confronting us with questions about the meaning of human life, because you could sort of imagine different narratives of how we respond. On one narrative, climate change leads us into civil war and nationalistic violence, and humans just sort of destroy themselves. If that's how human history looks, the answer to the question, how should we feel about human history, is pretty bleak. On the other hand, if we can weather the storm and find a way to address climate change with a modicum of justice that leads us into a future that is more sustainable. I think the answer to the question, how should we feel about human life is, well, mixed, but maybe at a certain level accepting of how things went. Not that we would ignore what went wrong, but that we could sort of tell the story in a way that is a basis for a certain degree of, of reconciliation. And so it, if that's right, then in a secular context, the question, does life have meaning? It makes sense. But whether there's an answer to it and what that answer is depends on us. It depends on how we collectively shape human history. 
And each of us individually has only a tiny part to play in that. So it's not, as it were, on me or you as an individual to determine the meaning of life, but it is something that is at stake for us collectively in a, right now in a way that, that I think climate change in particular makes vivid. So that's the way in which I think these, these sort of big questions about the meaning of life both make sense and are connected with issues about injustice that we deal with on a, a more local scale as well. Wow. Yeah. And you, you also touch um, in your chapter on absurdity, you also touch on children of men and that amazing. I, I watched the movie. I didn't read yeah. the book. Yeah. And part of the meaning that we're what we have in life is, you know, we we seek to have generations, future generations enjoy or at least try to enjoy the their time on Earth here like we have and we, we have this responsibility for them to inherit a, a, a better world than we had so hopefully and thankfully we'll never get to the point of children of men and we yeah. continue to pass the generational baton and kieran wrapping up i wanted to touch on your book which i haven't read i'm looking forward to reading it is midlife and where you dive deep into your own journey experiencing a midlife crisis so my question for you and i'm trying to articulate it the best way possible is what are what were the biggest insights during that could be a stressful moment in, in your life that you really retrieved and you were able to to you know see as part of the spectrum of enjoyment of life rather than something that put you down? It's a good question. I, I think of the midlife crisis as I experienced it as philosophically rich, actually. It's sort of, it's really about the irreversibility of time. It's about the shape, the fact that a human life involves having a history, a past that you cannot change and you have to come to terms with and about your relation to the present and the prospect of death in the future. So although I think these questions become come into focus around midlife, I think they're questions we can ask at any time. And I suppose if I had to, I what I would say is I think there are many midlife crises. So there's many different aspects to this, but two things that really, I think, were central shifts in how I think about my life that came out of this. One we've already talked about, which is this shift from a telic orientation on which I'm thinking, you know, if I work really hard, maybe I'll write 30 philosophy papers before I retire. And if I don't work so hard, it will be 20. And put in those terms, like, what am I doing? Like, what, this, this, that cannot really be put, it doesn't seem like an adequate justification for making my life in the intervening 30 years uh, a life of kind of relentless striving as opposed to one in which I'm stopping to smell the roses. So I think shifting from that telic orientation to a more atelic orientation, that was one big part of it. A second big part of it, which it would take some time to spell out exactly why this is so important, I think, mm -hmm. but it's it's worth stressing, I think, because it's, it's counterintuitive in a way, is that I think some of the challenges of regret in which you think, I wish I'd done something differently. My life could have been different and it could have been better. Or you think about the the things you've missed out on, the, the things you wish you'd done in life, but now there's no time to do them anymore. 
one way to push back against those kinds of regret is to resist, uh, in, in a way, resist a philosophical temptation to step back from the particular details of your life that you're attached to and start asking, you know, abstractly considered, would some other life have been better than mine? I think if you start asking those abstract questions, the answer is almost always going to be yes, abstractly considered, all kinds of lives could have been better than the life I'm actually living. And if I try to evaluate how to feel about that possibility in a way that steps back from the particular people I love and the particular aspects of my life that I'm attached to, that can generate a kind of a, a sense of uh, regret and nostalgia that is in a way uh, distorting. And it's distorting precisely because it lets go of one of the fundamental sources of rational attachment to our lives, which is not abstracting from the particulars. It's leaning into and acknowledging that it's the value of the particular things we're doing that matter and the particular people we know and interact with that is a rational counterweight to the fact that yes, some other life could have been better. Who knows what it would have been like? Mm -hmm. But the fact is I know what this life is like and I'm attached to the good things in it. And that's a perfectly reasonable way to resist regret in the face of the possibility that things could have been better. So I think developing that idea, the idea of attachment and its significance for our relationship to our own lives, that's the other kind of key insight that I really came to in, in grappling with my own midlife crisis. Kieran, I'm very thankful, selfishly speaking, honestly, that you were able to, you know, experience a very, very hard moment in one's life and come out of it trying to share your insights with others and you know i'm i'm very thankful because your ideas really have created an inflection point in my life where i'm trying to stop myself from being like this click movie character where i just go fast forwarding in projects and achievement and rather than taking a step back and saying you know there's a whole spectrum of things that make life valuable and life itself makes life valuable. So I really appreciate the work that you do. Uh, I haven't re uh, read Midlife, but I can say that Life is Hard really tackles very, very deep topics and topics that everyone really feels throughout their lives you put a practical sense to them in the in the way that you know life itself is valuable with all of the areas so thank you so much for joining me thank you for for what you do and for your work and you know it, it, this is really this has been really insightful thank you so much for having me it's been great to talk to you